You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, my name is John Bogdanov, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Epic Marvel Podcast. I'm your host, Curtis Findlay, and all of you Patreon supporters get a special interview now with John Bogdanov. And he's best known, of course, for uh, creating Steel and his long run on Superman. But he also was the penciler of a little miniseries called Fantastic Four vs. X-Men and uh, back in, in the 80s. And those issues are collected in the Fantastic Four epic collection called um, All in the Family. So this interview is a companion to uh, Fantastic Four, Episode 17, All in the Family. So be sure to check that one out. And even though I originally called to talk about that miniseries, the four-issue miniseries, we actually spent most of our time talking about Power Pack, which I'd never read. I read his entire run in preparation for this interview, and let me tell you, I was actually quite surprised at how good that series is. If you've ever shied away from Power Pack because you think it's just about little kids doing little kid things and it's, it's you know, not for you, it actually is, it actually is really great. Um, quite, a lot of it is quite dark and mature and uh, deals with themes that, uh, that, that you can relate to if you're a child or if you're a parent. Um, yeah, it's really great. And, and John Bogdano's contributions to that title is, are fantastic. If you are uh, a, a Patreon supporter pledging at five bucks, you get access to a whole bunch of interviews, including uh, interviews from Ron Friends and Jerry Conway, uh, which I think are still up. And uh, coming up, I'll give you a little sneak peek. I'm going to be talking to Steve Englehart pretty soon, so you'll want to uh, be around for that one. Yeah, this is just our way of saying thank you for being a supporter. We appreciate all, uh, all of you who are helping us with our, uh, with our monthly costs and, and, you know, keeping these podcasts running. Be sure to like us on Facebook, give us an iTunes rating, and uh, uh, do all that other social media stuff. Um, keep in touch. We'd love to hear from you and, uh, and hear your thoughts. Who should we interview? Who do you want me to talk to next? But uh, enough from me. Let's get right on with an interview with John Bogdanov. Welcome to the show, John. Nice to have you on. This it, you have a long association with Louise Simonson, which uh, you you worked a lot with her in Superman, and and uh, that association came uh, way before that. Can you tell me how you kind of got to know her? Well, it it actually uh, uh, happened uh, officially the first day I entered the Marvel bullpen. Uh, on the day I went in for my interview uh, to break into comics, the day I broke into comics. Wow, that day. That day. Can you tell me about that day? Okay, well, let me see. Uh, it's 1980. Uh, it, it, in other words, it's still, it's still the Marvel age of comics. Okay. 
I, th- I think I got in just under the wire, and I know it was still the Marvel Age of Comics because Jack Abel was still in the bullpen cracking jokes, and uh, and all oh eighty five. That's right, it was nineteen eighty five. Excuse me. Um, uh, you know, Jack Abel was still in the in the bullpen cracking jokes, and Stanley was still writing his soapbox, and he gave me my official Marvel bullpen. Name, you know, like there was Jazzy John Romita yep. and Big John. B- okay, I am, I am forever jocular John Bogdano. <laughs> nice, thank you, Stan. Yeah, um, wonderful. Uh, but the the day I went in, well, okay. At the time, my wife Judy uh, was uh, a teacher in New York at PS One Sixty Six. Okay. Uh, fourth and fifth grade teacher, and we were living on a boat in the Hudson River at the 79th Street Boat Basin. And uh, I had been uh, going to the School of Visual Arts uh, until I ran out of money. Um, I was trying to put myself through school doing uh, caricature gigs and portrait gigs at, at uh, you know trade shows and, and bar mitzvahs and the like. Um, Judy got pregnant with our son, Kellel. And uh, I, Kel- yes, Kalal. <laughs> awesome. Kalal, who is today, by the way, uh, a story editor at Disney. Yeah. Uh, so related to the to the world of Marvel, um, and uh, and al- was also the uh, the uh, performance director on Fallout Four, among many other games. Okay. Wow. So anyway, um, uh, so uh, back to 1985. Um, so I, I uh, Judy got pregnant, and I realized, well, okay, I'm not going to be going back to school. I'm going to be going to work. Um, so uh, it, I got really serious about getting into comics. But in those days, you know, uh, how how to break into comics was not um, a popularly known thing. In fact, uh, uh, things like Bristol boards and and um, uh, uh, India ink were like cool trade secrets secrets you would unearth as a as a fan. Uh, so I didn't really know how to proceed. But um, two of our all time favorite books were part of part of my wife's and my courtship behavior <laughs> was to was to snuggle in bed and read comic books together. Awesome. Um, uh, pre or post. Uh, and, uh, and <laughs> our two, fa- our two favorite comics, uh, at the time were, uh, Walter Simonson's Thor, oh, which yeah. he was right in the midst of, and Louise Simonson's Power Pack. Wow. Cool. And we just, we just, we just loved them, uh, both for, for so many reasons, but, but, but both books had a lot of heart. You know they were they were yeah. smart. They were not they were not geeky in that they were not, and I don't mean that really pejoratively. But they were not um, they were not feeding just on nothing but fan service. They were they were really they were intelligent and beautiful and uh, funny and and felt m- m- like Marvel. You know, like like the way we like to think of Marvel. Right. And and. Um, so we, we love those books, and of course, anyone who's a fan of Power Pack knows that uh, the Power Parents are are uh, just an analog for the real life Walter and Louise Simonson. 
Um, and uh, Judy deduced from the context of the stories that, oh, they have an apartment on 71st Street. That must be where Walter and Louise Simonson lived. So while I was, I, I was assembling my portfolio, but I didn't know where to go. And Judy jumped on the phone book. There were phone books in those days. Right. And uh, <laughs> in two minutes, she had looked up Walter and Louise Simonson, 71st Street. That must be the one right around the corner from us. Uh, she dialed the phone and handed it to me. Uh, and I had no idea what was going on. There was just a phone in my face, and there was Walter Simonson, the god, the legend himself, wow. on the other end of the line. Hello? You know? Fantastic. Um, uh, so I, I don't know exactly how long I stammered or tripped over my tongue, but ultimately, um, uh, Walter was very nice and very forthcoming and, and incredibly generous with his time and his information. And in, a, in his wonderfully raconteurish uh, uh, prof- professorial way, he pretty much gave me the blueprint of what to do, which in those days is very different from what it is now. Right. But, uh, but his advice was uh, make two packages of samples, Xeroxes only, um, uh, one for uh, six pages in all, three pages of a DC character, three pages of a Marvel character. Put, put samples for both DC and Marvel uh, in two envelopes, so that uh, or, or as many envelopes as you want, as you want, but show the DC people both sets and show the Marvel people both sets. Then make a list of editors that you think you could work for or whose books you think you'd be good on. Uh, make an appointment with them and go in and see them. Now, in those days, uh, certainly at Marvel. It was part. Every, I think in both companies, it was part of every editor's job to set aside some time during the week to develop new talent, and that means looking at portfolios. Uh, you know, a, a majority of which probably are just you know kid wannabes who may or may not be worthy of further encouragement. Right. But 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 it was considered part of the job to to uh, develop the next generation. Um, so you could get an appointment. You could get FaceTime. Um, so I made an appointment with uh, a DC editor uh, who's not there anymore, who I'd met at a caricature gig, actually. Um, and I got an appointment, and I got an appointment for later that afternoon with Larry Hama. Oh, because, you know, I thought I could draw Conan pretty well, and you know who, <laughs> who's this John Buscema guy anyway? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, so I, I was like shooting for the top. Uh, anyway, um, I did just as Walter said. I got my portfolio together just as he uh, described. I made these appointments. They put on my my Clark Kent suit and tie and went into D.C. and waited for like two and a half hours. Um, uh, and finally, an assistant came out and said, uh, he's just not going to be able to see you today. And I said, oh, well, thank you very much. I got to go to my Marvel appointment anyway. And I left the, uh, I left my uh, package of samples, uh, with the, with the assistant and I went over to Marvel and I went into Larry Hama's office. First of all, this was, I think at 385 where Marvel was in those days. Yeah. And, and it was really bullpenny. It's it, as a fan, uh, I, I should probably try and set the atmosphere. It looked still a little bit 
seedy almost. Not quite seedy, but but it wasn't it wasn't the slick Rockefeller Center corporate offices that DC had at the time, which okay. were very cool. Right. They were very cool. It was, but it was much more, um, it was much more 1960. Uh, uh, a little bit. I think it was the same office they'd been at, at for some time. Anyway, yeah. um, but it was a bullpen, which means it was a central area where production art was all done, production and corrections was all done, and around the perimeter were arranged. Uh, uh, glassed offices of of all the editors, okay. all of whom their doors were open. Nice. So there was a there was a phenomenal convivial atmosphere, and I, I can't emphasize how much it fulfilled my expectations from the pictures that Stan uh, 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 drew in my imagination from reading the letters pages and the bullpen bulletins all those years and Stan's soapbox. It was, the, it, it felt like Marvel. Do you know what I mean? It, oh, it sure. had that, yeah, it had, it had that Marvel magic. Stan had been painting that picture all these years. Yes, he had. Yeah. And, and, and part of the magic, part of Stan's genius uh, is that he made all of us who read Marvel comics in the 60s and 70s, he made us all feel like we were um, in on it. You know that we right. were part of the process, which in fact, which in fact the readers are. Readers are part of the process because they comics really happen, as Scott McCloud says, in the borders between panels. So, but but Stan made us feel like we were part of that. We were part of what was happening, this revolution that was Marvel, and we were in on it, and we were, and it was all part of a family, and certainly a community, a tribe, Mary Marvel Marching Society, or, or whatever. Right. You know. Um, and and he would give uh, in the bullpens and the soapbox. He'd give us glimpses of what was going on behind the scenes, or what he what purported to be going behind the scenes. But but um, you know he created a he created a magic and an atmosphere, uh, the remnants of which still linger around Marvel even even today. And uh, and it, and in 1985, going through that door, if you, if you go on Facebook and go to the old timers on Throwback Thursday, sometimes they'll they'll post pictures of of what the offices were like then, and they're all you know doing human pyramids and and having parties <laughs> and supporting and doing yeah. all kinds of groovy, groovy hippie stuff because they were all the hippie generation of of editors, and it looked like man, it looked like a fun place to work. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and walking through those doors in 1985, it really did feel like a fun place to work. Wow. And there was Mary Severin, and there was Jack Abel, and there was Al Milgram, Milgram and, and there was Virginia Romita, and then, and it was it was uh, uh, you know it was those days, and um, I wasn't in the waiting room two minutes before uh, before uh, someone came out and, and ushered me into Larry's office, and I don't know if you've spoken with Larry Hama, I've but not. he's a very he's a very cool, slightly scary dude. <laughs> oh, yeah. In other words. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, he's uh, he's got military service uh, behind right. him. I think he's a Vietnam vet. Yeah, and um, and he's really no bullshit, and he's phenomenally smart when it comes to story and art. He's incredibly as 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 the best editors I've ever worked for are the very quick studies. But but um, but Larry is is uh, really sharp. So I was I was a little bit nervous. But you know, I'm I'm a big guy, and I'm wearing a suit and tie, and 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 you know, he, he says, uh, you know, ne- next time you come in, you don't have to wear your Clark Kent clothes. Uh, 
Uh, and he looked at my um, portfolio, which was a set of Superman pages and a set of Conan pages. Um, and he said, basically cut right to the chase, he said, well, look, look here, kid. These are great, but we're not exactly going to fire John Buscema for you. <laughs> but you're not leaving here without a job. Wow. Boom! Holy yeah, cow. I know. Wow. So in my head, my head exploded at that. And he took me by the ear and he dragged me down the uh, hall a couple of doors to Carl Potts's office. He sent me into Carl Potts's office. Yeah. Uh, and he said, Carl, give this guy work. Um, and uh, this was interrupting Carl, who was in a deep discussion with uh, a really attractive, sunny, blonde woman. Uh, uh, and they were discussing quite earnestly who they could possibly get to replace June Brigman because she was leaving. Right. And obviously that meant they were talking about power pack yep. and, and this was Louise Simonson. Wow. Uh, and, and, you, and you didn't know, uh, well, I, 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 I figured it out obviously from what they were talking about. And yeah. he was saying, uh, you know, they were rejecting this guy and that guy. No, nobody in, nobody in comics can draw kids that look like kids. <laughs> uh, 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 they all look like muscular midgets, um, was, was the line. And meanwhile, while we're having this discussion, Carl is flipping through my, my samples. Uh, and the, the miracle moment happened, which was um, uh, a year ago, Judy and I had been traveling and, uh, you know, camping around the, the seacoast of Maine and Canada you know, in, our, in a van. And I had drawn a picture of kids playing on the beach uh, in Maine. Okay. And, and I'd sold that picture at a gallery and it was long gone. Somehow a year later, uh, one of the original sketches for that drawing had somehow found its way into not the DC packet, but the packet that ended up in Carl's hands. Whoa. And without him realizing it, this picture of kids playing at the beach drifted out, slipped out from between the Xeroxes and sort of uh, zigzagged through the air down and settled on the, on the desk. And Wheezy saw it and picked it up and said, Carl, look, he can draw kids. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> and that was it. Uh, and, uh, uh, I was, I was in and I was, I, I broke into, I had broken into comics just about the best way you can imagine. That is and, incredible. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, the starting rate in those days was $70 a page and, uh, uh, I, they started me at 75, which was pretty cool. Uh, yeah. that was wheezy going, that was wheezy going to bat for me. Uh, they got me that rate and, uh, Carl set me up with, um, with uh, an issue of uh, Alpha Flight and an issue of Solomon Kane, because there were going to be a couple of months before June left. Uh, so he sent me up with, with filler work. And, and um, here's, uh, where, here's another thing that marked the Marvel Age back then. Uh, yes, it was, it was every editor's job to, to look at and develop new talent. Um, Carl Potts really took that seriously. He, um, 
gave me art school education that I never got at SCA. Uh, he gave me um, just reams of stuff to look at. Uh, he, we we would talk extensively about things like negative space and and uh, 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 um, you know composing for black and all that sort of stuff, uh, which he w- did with everybody. Um, so he was uh, as much a teacher as an editor and one of the best teachers I've ever had. Um, I still, you know, I refer to his lessons literally every day. Uh, um, so anyway, that's how I got in. They sent me away with, I had, I had two months of work. Uh, I finished my first, uh, issue of, of, uh, Alpha Flight while Judy was on the delivery table. What? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, we're we're in the, we're in Roosevelt Hospital hospital, and you know Judy's Judy is uh, 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 in transition labor, and I'm frantically trying to draw the 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 last uh, page. You know, say breathe, honey, breathe. Coaching her, you know, like <laughs> yeah. like you do the natural childbirth, 1980s, all yeah. that sort of. Breathe, yeah. honey, breathe. Hand me the eraser, will you? Uh, breathe. <laughs> you know. With a pencil in your hand. With with a pencil in my hand, that's right. And she was like, forget the pencil, I want my epidural! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, So anyway, um, that's how how I broke in, and and those uh, those early days at Marvel were every bit of fulfillment of Stan's promise. Wow. That's that's incredible. What a what a fantastic story, origin story. Were you happy with those first few issues that you did? Um, let me tell you this: there's a there's a vast difference between drawing comics for yourself yeah. that you write and draw, uh, and and drawing characters that a you're not that familiar with, and b that somebody else is writing. I'm sure, yeah. And a lot depends on who your writer is, probably more than what the characters are. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, in those days, Marvel still worked the Marvel method, right? Uh, which uh, I'm sure your listeners know it means that you're working from a, you're, as an artist, you're working from a plot synopsis that that sometimes you actually co-plot with your writer, right? Uh, uh, you're not working from a full script, so um, you have a great deal of latitude as to how to tell the story. Uh, and and you have the uh, ability to use all your to bring all your powers to bear, which is not something that you get working full script. Working full script uh, in a way you're they're they're holding your ears, um, and you are restricted much more to what the writer is envisioning. And if the writer is not necessarily a visual thinker, you're just sort of stuck with that. Um, so, but but Marvel way, you would get uh, a wonderfully uh, uh, provocative, inspiring script. I mean, plot synopsis, where you'd get a ba- about a paragraph of description per page, um, which broke down to about a sentence per panel, maybe two sentences per panel, of just what happens, what happens, what happens, what happens, right. and um, and this was an incredibly natural way to work for me. Oh, good. Uh, and, and, I, and I latched right onto it. I think, uh, I think you know, I have, I have 
many weaknesses, but I have a couple of strengths as an artist, and and one of my strengths is uh, storytelling. I was all I was always good at. Uh, what they used to call in those days shooter proofing, which is getting the ne- necessary expositional information into the eyes of the reader, you know, um, so that you could tell you can. Uh, one of one of the, my rules of comics is you need to be able to follow the gist of the story without any words. The pictures really need to tell the story. So I, I was always pretty good at that. Uh, I was always pretty good at pacing and timing and uh, and characterization. Good with gesture and expression. So so uh, those are my strengths, and those are really the strengths you need to be a good Marvel style Marvel uh, method uh, artist, uh, because you are in a, you are in some sense writing with pictures. Um, so I was I was pretty fluent uh, from the start. Um, never as fast as I'd like, but but uh, but I I got the Marvel method uh, very naturally. Um, so uh, let's see. Solomon Kane took a lot of research because I'd never read Solomon Kane, uh, so I had to read up some Robert E. Howard stuff. I had uh, um, read some Alpha Flight, and of course Carl being Carl, he outfitted me with tons of stuff to go through. So I read the entire run before I started my first page. Nice. So, uh, so, um, no, actually, it was, yeah, it was pretty fun. It was pretty fun work. Uh, there, the, the, the most difficult thing, I think, is um, uh, the hours. Because I was suddenly working uh, 14 to 18 hours a day, seven days a week. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Um, and, and that's a lot in one position, you know, one physical position. Right. So, so there's some, some physical stress involved. But, uh, but you know, when you're young, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and, and I mean, Joe Orlando used to say, comics are kids drawing pictures for slightly younger kids. And, um, and I, I understand that more now that I'm an old fart than I did then. But, um, but part of the reason for that, I think, is just endurance. It's okay. a lot of, it's a lot of work. Uh, it's about 18 or 20 hours for, of work for, uh, for a $70 page. Um, and sometimes it can be more. I've, I've spent I've spent forty eight hours on a single page in the past. So, Whoa. <laughs> so depending on depending on the, depending on the challenge of the page, you know, you could you could end up making thirty five cents an hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so, but but I mean, you don't do comics to get rich. You do comics because you love it so much. You have to do it. Right. <laughs> yeah, you have um, to. You you have to do it because you love it so much, and that that's pretty much it. Um, and and uh, I mean, my most everything in my career is a labor of love, uh, but it certainly was pretty much right from the get go at Marvel. Wow! So you're you start on Power Pack. Um, what's your uh, collaboration with Louis Simonson like? Well, uh, our first our first month. Let me put it that way. Uh, Weezy and Walter invited us over for dinner right before I started the book. Uh, and we came, well, we brought, you know, our little infant son over and we, and they, uh, to their 
71st Street apartment, and it would look just the way June had drawn it in the comic book, and uh, uh, I took reference photos to use in the comic book. <laughs> for, the, for the Power Packs apartment? Uh, yes. Wow. Um, so it was, all, it was all literally accurate to, the way, to, to, to where they lived. <laughs> okay. um, and, uh, uh, you know, it was, like being, it was like being adopted. Walter and Louise Simonson are like these great archangels of comics. And, uh, and they have nurtured and hosted so many people uh, that, um, I don't know, I, there's, there's nobody else really like them. Uh, and uh, I, I'm incredibly lucky to uh, have been one of those. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there we were eating homemade lentil, uh, lentil soup and talking about Jack Kirby uh, with the great Walter and Louise Simonson. And, um, you know, uh, uh, Weezy talked about what she was doing with Power Pack and where she was going with it and, you know, what I would be facing. So that by the time the first issue hit, I kind of knew, you know, I, I felt, I felt on board. Um, so, um, my approach on power pack was, I mean, we lived a few blocks from Wheezy and Walter. So I, we were close to, uh, uh, I was close to my writer and, um, and you know, we could hang out at any time. Uh, but also we lived in the neighborhood where Power Pack lived. Uh, and this was the New York City of Marvel Comics. Um, in the, you know, in those days, uh, the Upper West Side was still, uh, um, still possible to be a middle class person there. Right. Judy was a school teacher. I was a comic book artist, and we lived on the west side of New York. Uh, you, we we need to be multimillionaires to to live the same way yeah. now. But man, you could you could walk around the the, the streets and look up, and I I look up at the uh, uh, water towers, and I could just see Spider Man hopping around up there. Um, and it was you know it was magical time to to uh, um, be in New York. And so I took full advantage of that. I would use the city because, I mean, let's face it, New York has always been as much of a character uh, as Thor, Iron Man, or Captain America. It's, I mean, it's, New York is a character in the Marvel Universe. Right. Um, and I, so I took full advantage of living in New York City, and I think it really I think it informed uh, my, my work when I needed to draw uh, the Morlocks, I went down under the pen yards uh, where uh, there were colonies of homeless people uh, and uh, and hung out and draw their drew their environments, which you know i mean honestly they were totally they were totally cool with that um, New York homeless people are uh, a rugged bunch because they endure new york winters right. um, wow. Uh, and you know, I would uh, I would occasionally bring food or money or something like that because I was, after all, intruding on their home uh, to to and, and exploiting them for comics. Um, uh, but they were actually really cool. I mean, man, if you say it's for a Marvel comic, doors open everywhere. People <laughs> yeah. are happy to participate. Happy to participate. I remember one time, I I needed um, I needed to figure out how to draw 
the way a cop holds a gun, you know, the two-handed gun uh, position when someone is really drawn, when a cop really draws down on somebody yeah. with two hands. Yeah. And I needed to figure out what that looked like from the barrel, right at me, right? Um, uh, because it just it's peculiar the way the, the fingers wrap around the other hand and all that. So I really, I need to work that out. So, um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm standing there with uh, a cop who's happy to help. The cop is like drawn down dramatically. The, the barrel of the, of the 44 is, is like <laughs> right, right, ag- right up against my nose and yeah. he's taking a dramatic stance. And he's holding and the other cop, the other cop walks in, and he immediately puts his hand on his gun and says, Joe, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> it's for a comic. It's going to be in Spider-Man. <laughs> it's not the Spider-Man. It's perfect. But, <laughs> but uh, and, and uh, oh, God, another time we needed, uh, we needed a crack house for the comics. And there was, uh, there was one sort of, sort of on the, uh, at the north end of Hell's Kitchen that I knew was obviously notoriously a crack house. Okay. So I took my camera and I climbed up the, the, uh, the, the fire escape out back and I took pictures through the window and I, I sat in front and I sketched the thugs coming and going and, and I never got shot. <laughs> I never ended up a chalk outline. Uh, but man, it was a realistic crack house, you know? Wow. Um, uh, and I mean, these are just some of the of the uh, pleasures of being able to draw Marvel comics in Marvel City. Yeah, you know, so that so in the in the first issue I did of, of Power Pack, uh, you know, it's a snowy day in New York. The kids uh, uh, go pick up Franklin at Avengers Mansion, and they go play in the snow. Basically, is is is, is uh, they get into a fight. But anyway. Um, uh, to be able to actually um, walk through the action and actually stage it, this is where this happens, this is where this happens, this is where this happens, uh, uh, in, in the city or in, that, in the park, uh, is, is great. I, I don't know if, I don't know if it, readers ever, ever got it, but it gave, it, it gave me such a connection and a feeling of verisimilitude uh, that uh, it was kind of like living in the book itself. Yeah, the you know the the border between what's real, what's what's imagination, and what's actual reference starts to blur in my mind. Well, it sounds like um, that was a lot of the purpose, even by putting the uh, like the powers apartment was a real life place, and uh, you do get that sense of of really being in their world. I mean, you remember reading comics, reading Marvel when you were a kid. Oh yeah, um, uh, you know. Uh, Again, Stan had this way of making New York feel like our town, um, and uh, and it's so much of what the characters are and what the characters do. I mean, when Marvel moved out west, I was really worried because what's Marvel without New York City? And and certainly in those days, the city informed everything that came out of that company. Yeah. Whether whether it was actually set in the city or not, um, but I remember, you know, reading Spider-Man around the time that that uh, 
John Romita Sr. was inking Gil Kane uh, around the around the time of the death of Gwen Stacy, but that whole that whole era. Right. And uh, and uh, Gil. Um, but by the way, it's still my favorite era of Spider-Man. Just, yeah. Just the dynamics, the dynamics of Gil, plus the classic look of Romita, plus these wonderful backgrounds that a guy named Tony Mortallero was doing. Okay. It just felt, it just felt to me like, like, uh, like you were there, like this was a real place, and like they were real people, and that that's kind of the, you know, that's kind of uh, to this day, that's kind of the 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 strength of, of Marvel and they know it, they, they put it in the movies and, and, you know, when the Avengers go and get shawarma after a fight, that, that, those kinds of personal touches that make these godlike characters feel like, Hey, you're pals you can hang out with. Um, you know, I think that's sort of central and essential to, uh, Marvel magic. Don't you? Oh yeah, definitely. And it sounds like, um, the attitude that, New Yorkers have when you mention like you the examples that you've given me um, are reflected in these heroes that come out on the page as well. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, I think Marvel's New York might be, um, you know, a little bit slightly caricatured because everything in comics is caricatured uh, to some, you know, exaggerated to some extent. Yeah. Um, but uh, but you couldn't help. You know, going, stepping stepping into New York City in those days, you if you whether it was a convention or you were just a tourist or whatever, coming to New York from someplace else, and I didn't grow up in New York, so so it was uh, it was new to me. It's the the fact that suddenly you're in Spider-Man's world is irrefutable, and it permeates everything. You know, every every, every uh, corner hot dog stand every every subway platform it feels like spider-man's world yeah well let's uh let's step out of new york for a little while and talk a All little right. bit about snark world um and this this other this other dimension or this other world place that is that takes up a lot of power packs time um tell me about drawing these characters and and uh the way they worked with the power pack well, um, with the snarks, I was I was you know uh, locked into to um, June's design, which is fine because um, they weren't typical comic book monsters, you know. Right. Um, a lot, a lot of uh, a preponderance of of uh, comic book monsters are sort of the Kirby monster. A, yeah, they're well. They're they're heavily influenced by Kirby's uh, monsters, which were by and large humanoid. Yeah, right. Um, which is, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the Kirby monsters. Oh yes, oh, yes. all the Marvel monsters. I love them. Um, uh, and and Groot has graduated to superhero, but yeah. <laughs> but uh, um, but I love them. But uh, but June really went uh, another way. Um, and I had a little hard time getting a handle on them at first because part of them is sort of crocodilian and reptilian, and part of them is sort of insectoid, you know, the way their legs bend and stuff. Right. Um, and, uh, and it was, um, uh, it was a challenge trying to get a handle on how that worked, on how the anatomy was, on, on what their, uh, skeleton, how their skeleton worked, what the kinesthetic, what, what the kinesthetics of their movement would be, but um, but all that aside, I 
loved that you could juxtapose life of middle class kids in New York with with uh, uh, traveling the universe. And I loved Friday because, especially the way June designed it, because it was just like this wonderful, comfy van, yeah. you know. Uh, this wonderful comfy van that you could travel through the stars with and it had a great big window and and it wasn't exactly seats inside it wasn't you know it wasn't influenced by the millennium falcon it wasn't influenced by uh uh, uh the enterprise it was its own spaceship and it was the kind of a spaceship really that when you're a kid you would build out of refrigerator boxes and overturn tables you know it yeah. it, it was like it was like your little playroom in space uh, and on top of that, it was a smart ship. So, so Friday had this this wonderful personality. And um, if I have, if when I when I uh, fantasize about revisiting Power Pack, uh, I always want to do more space hopping because Friday, actually Friday, if she's if she's uh, anything like uh, any established starship, I guess she's probably closest to the TARDIS. And that she's quite comfy and, and homey uh, and has a personality. Yeah, right. Hmm. And she's not too big. So, so she's a little bit TARDIS-like because she has a personality. Um, so I really, I would love to do more of scooting around the universe in, in Friday because right. I thought that was a wonderful, I thought that was a wonderful relationship. Um, uh, and I, you know, uh, the thing I like best about the snarks and snark world is these snarks were wonderfully megalomaniacal in in the classic in the classic Marvel tradition, uh, but they carefully seemed to sidestep that they lived in the same universe as the Kree and the Skrull and Galactus and I mean I mean as as a predatory outer space species go they're kind of small time right you know what i'm saying yeah. they're kind of small time but they had no clue that they were small time <laughs> <laughs> so i loved uh, you know maraud was this wonderful character queen maraud yeah. queen mother maraud um because you know uh she would monologue as you know you do uh the villain the villain monologuing um and she would do it as grand as any Marvel villain would do. And, you know, she was a legitimate threat to the, to the Powers kids. But, you know, as Marvel Galactic beings go, she's pretty small potatoes. Right, yeah. And I, and I, and I kind of like that. So, I mean, as with everything in Power Pack, it's a strange book because we were putting, we were putting kids in dire danger. Uh, uh, and and exposing them to things that maybe you know in real life wouldn't be healthy for kids, and yet they respond to it in a healthy manner. Um, so it, it, I mean, in some ways, Steven Universe today reminds me a little bit of, of Power Pack um, uh, because essentially the fundamental kid-like qualities is what would save the day, right? Uh, and some of the things, some of the threats they faced were bigger and more cosmic. Some of the th- threats they would face were more dire and personal. Uh, and some of them were a little bit, you know, not so serious. But the situations were there to uh, tell a story about character. 
as all good comics are. The really, you're telling a story about characters. Uh, uh, you know, all superheroes, all comics are uh, metaphors for you know conditions for real aspects of the human condition, just writ large. Yeah. Uh, the the you know the easiest examples in Marvel are, you know, Hulk is. Hulk is a metaphor for puberty, and and uh, you know when 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 boys uh, uh, get their first shot of testosterone poisoning and need to learn to <laughs> need to learn to control the raging beast that dwells within. Uh, um, likewise, uh, uh, the X books, uh, the X Men, uh, are uh, again uh, about about uh, coming of age. You know, it's a metaphor for something that the audience goes through, which is, you know, uh, you reach puberty and suddenly you develop uh, strange, unfamiliar, uh, abnormal attributes that make you an outcast in human society. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Uh, So so, um, uh, the best superheroes are... uh, are about character and the best superhero stories are um, just large mythic uh, uh, versions of things that we all go through in our lives. Right. Well, we've already been talking for quite a while and we haven't even touched what I actually really want to talk about. So I'd like to get to your Fantastic Four miniseries and then come back to Power Pack when you started writing it just for, and then, uh, um, make sure that we kind of stay on track because I don't want to keep you forever here. Um, All right, I will. I'll, I'll try and bomb through. Okay. Fantastic Four versus the X Men. Uh, uh, what an uh, awesome experience that was. I think I'm, I it required a lot of fill-ins on Power Pack to do it, but um, Weezy encouraged me to do it. Uh, um, Carl encouraged me to do it. Uh, Mike Carlin was the editor and Chris Claremont was the writer. How could I not do it? Yeah. So no. did they ask you? They came to you? Uh, yeah. No, they invited me. Uh, they invited me to do it. And um, it was uh, it was amazing. Um, first of all, I mean, it was my introduction to Mike Carlin, which shaped my career. Yeah. Uh, still, you know, the greatest editor in my experience. Um and uh, uh, it was Fantastic Four, which, which, uh, power pack aside, Fantastic Four is my favorite Marvel uh, book. Absolutely, I mean Jack's Jack's run on Fantastic Four is is Marvel for me. Yeah, um, it it is, and like Power Pack, it's a it's a it's a family it's a family superhero comedy adventure. You know, it's like it's like The Incredibles. It is. It's, uh, in fact, well, the Incredibles, Incredibles is, is best, Fantastic Four. <laughs> yeah, the Incredibles is the best Fantastic Four movie ever made. Just like the Iron Giant is the best Superman movie ever made. Yes, yes, um, yes. So, uh, um, so I mean, how could I not? I was already. I mean, I'd done, I done. I touched on both sets of characters, the X Men and the Fantastic Four, uh, in the context of Power Pack. Right. But to get to work with Chris. And to get to work with Mike and to get to work with both of those groups was irresistible. And and uh, uh, Chris was, I mean, you know, Chris and the Simonsons are tight. They're 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 they're, they're, they're Chris is part of the Simonson universe, or Simonson is part of their universe, or whatever. But they're 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 part of that same uh, group. And so they were pals. And Chris uh, 
such a wonderful writer, and it was really apparent early on in the run that he was writing for me. He'd obviously seen my power pack stuff and uh uh you know he knew that i do the sentimental stuff really well and and that uh this stuff with a lot of feeling and that i really liked ben Grimm, and and so he, and he was throwing stuff at me that was like designed for me uh and that doesn't all that doesn't always happen that's 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 something peculiar about the uh about the Marvel method uh, is that sometimes the writer will write for the artist, write for the artist's strengths, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's and that's really what happened with with Fantastic Four and the X Men. Wow, um, and it feels like there's a lot of um, like this miniseries is kind of a, an extension of what Franklin was going through in Power Pack. Um, the, his story kind of carries on, so it was neat to see your you you also kind of carry on, like follow the character through this as well. Yes. Well, I mean, I, I I had a strong affinity for Franklin because very early on I started modeling him after after Kal El. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, Franklin in the in in, his, in the comic books is basically uh, the way I drew him. He's basically a portrait of of our son at that age. Um, so yeah, I, I was I felt pretty personal about about uh, Franklin, and you know, also you have to. You have to understand that, that at that age, uh, Kal-El was unusually articulate, and he had pretty much charmed everybody uh, to uh, you know in the, in, in the in the business. He got he had verbal very early, so that by the time yeah. uh, uh, by the time that Chris was writing Franklin for Fantastic Four versus the X Men, uh, I really think. I really think that he was writing a little of Kal-El in there. Okay, wow. That's really interesting. That's uh, what an honor to have Chris Claremont putting your son in there. Uh, what a great writer. I, I, wish he'd be, I wish he was writing more. So tell me a little bit about um, working with Chris, the back and forth kind of between the two uh, his plotters. You know, I, I wish... Uh, I wish I knew then how precious the Marvel method was. At the time, it was just the way comics were made. I don't know how to describe it. I mean, nowadays, if you even meet your writer or, or speak to your writer, it's a rare thing. Right. Most of the time, uh, everything is done through email and filtered through the editor. So it's just an email relationship with the editor, no relationship with the writer at all. And you get a script, the uh, assembly line style, that could be drawn essentially by anybody. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, that's sort of the norm now. Um, and I hope, to, I hope I didn't take for granted, I, but I know I didn't fully appreciate uh, what it meant to really collaborate with people that became your friends and with people with whom you had a sense of community. I mean, we really were a Marvel tribe. Uh, and, uh, and we, there was, there was the sense, uh, a very real sense that it was a family. And I think that the company benefited from that, uh, from that vibe and that sensibility. Because there was, because when you would, when they would do crossovers, there was real crossing over, 
with writers talking to writers and, and hanging out with writers and going out for pizza together and artists talking to artists and, and sharing stuff and going over to each other's house and looking at each other's stuff and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, an exchange of energy that made a crossover event uh, a, an actual crossover creatively as well. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, as a comic book artist, most of the time you're drawing. You're at the desk and you're drawing. Uh, so that when you do have a conference with the writer, even if it's just over the phone, um, uh, you get a tremendous amount out of it uh, because what because what develops is a meeting of the minds. You know, yes. it's not just well, I'm 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 receiving uh, an anonymous script and it's all there and I have nothing to go on but what the words are on the page. It's very different if. You know a person, and they're your friend, and you've gotten into each other's heads a little bit and, and, and know each other. Because just as, as Chris was playing to me, I was started to play to him. Uh, and the, a synergy develops that doesn't really exist so much in comics now, but which is uh, a, a very gratifying way to work, but I also think a, a fundamental aspect of what made Marvel Marvel, what made the Marvel Age the Marvel Age. Wow. Can you speak a little bit about um, drawing a book that contains so many characters? Is that a, was that a challenge for you? Well, there's, there's, there was a saying in Marvel of those days, team books kill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and um, that's, there, there's something to that because... Uh, I'm not able to treat uh, treat characters as stock characters or action figures. I, in order to function at all, in order to draw them at all, I have to get into them and invest in them. Uh, and uh, and so the the challenge with a the challenge with with a team book is just so many people, so many feelings, hmm. so many characters. So many heads to, to get inside that uh, that in a very real sense, it can be emotionally exhausting. Yeah, because you're switching from I guess some sort of method in the way I draw. You're switching from you know Logan's state of mind to Franklin's state of mind, to <laughs> Pride's state of mind, to Victor Von Doom's state of mind. You know, to Ben yeah, Grimm's state yeah. of mind, and some are easier fits than others. You know, uh, like like. I have no trouble snapping into Ben Grimm. I have no trouble snapping into, into Dr. Doom. You know, uh, uh, I have uh, uh, no trouble snapping into Franklin. Um, uh, I have a little more trouble snapping into Logan in a very real way. I mean, I love the character, but, but, uh, but he, uh, it took me a while, it took me longer to get Wolverine than it did. Yeah. The, I mean, I, I walked on already knowing, uh, I mean, I'd, and I'd read Wolverine for years. I'd well, read uh, uh, X-Men for years. But I have an affinity for Ben Grimm, and I walked on knowing him Im- immediately. Uh, and, and I have an affinity for Dr. Doom, and of course I already knew Franklin really well. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but a lot of the X-Men uh, uh, div- were difficult. Havoc was difficult. Uh, 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 um, Longshot, actually, Longshot, uh, Longshot and Warlock I sort of, uh, they were sort of my entry into, uh, into the rest of the X-Men somehow. 
Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, you know they were they were they were um, highly accessible uh, to me for some reason. But there was still even even then even when I really knew the characters and of course by the end of every project you really know how you should have done it to begin with. <laughs> uh, by the end of the project, by the end of the project, I really knew all the characters and 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 uh, felt close to all the characters. Uh, but even so, there's a lot of switching gears from scene to scene and person to person and character to character. Well, and a lot of this book deals with the internal struggle for a lot of these characters. Um, yes. So you you really do have to get. It's not that that that's your normal way but in, even more so for this book you you're forced to get into their heads oh yeah uh, yeah do you have a favorite moment from this miniseries oh god i have so many uh uh one of course is where um franklin stops kitty from from dispersing herself on the wind yes uh it might be my favorite i also really love when Rogue attacks the thing, thinking that 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 he's a monster, and uh, she plants one on him, and, uh, <laughs> and then realizes she gets his that powers. That he gets his powers, but then but realizes that he's a prince inside. Oh, oh, right. That yes. inside the monster is the heart of a of a, of a wonderful person. Yeah, because she gets his memories uh, and it, too, and it, and it makes her and it actually makes her cry because she feels all his pain and everything. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so I really I really like that. Uh, moment. I like any time I get to draw Doctor Doom monologuing. Oh yeah. Oh my God, I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I love uh, I love when um, She Hulk is sitting down in that wonderful library that lets you have food, uh, and she's sitting down. She's she's having a a, a a pastry, and Ben Grimm is smoking one stack away. And, and ruining her moment. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I like that. I, I I'd love to know where there is a library where you can eat pastry and and, and smoke cigars, but <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. It's the Marvel universe. It's a special library. Uh, uh, let's see. What else? What else do I I, I? I liked drawing Latveria. Okay. You know, Just I, the very I like drawing style that, country. Yeah, yeah, and the, the sort of mountainous. You know, Carpathian, uh, yeah, Eastern Europe kind of uh, vibe. Was it was it was fun? I guess when you're stuck drawing New York a lot, then that's a welcome change. And yet, it still felt so. It still felt so vintage, classic Marvel, because it's Fantastic Four, it's Doctor Doom, it's the it's the classic tropes. So, so I mean, I mean, like any geek, I, I get off on drawing the classic tropes. I just want to, I, I just love, you know, regurgitating my interpretations of the great images of, of my predecessors. It's just, it's just one of the fun things about drawing comics is, oh man, I get to draw Dr. Doom. Awesome! You know? <laughs> so um, let's, let's switch back to Power Pack now. You uh, took some time sure. off to do that. And I think you did another, you did another miniseries in there as well sometime, Exterminators, which I was going to ask you about, but... We'll have to save that yep. for another time. Um, another time. You got uh, into writing and drawing Power Pack. Oh, tell me about that. Yes. Wheezy um, left Power Pack to, do, to take over X Factor. Yep. And, uh, and I think she was going to try to write them both for a while, but I was, she was very nurturing, and she knew that I was into writing. 
I don't know how. I don't know. I kept filling in the borders with, with dialogue suggestions. So she decided, rather than keep writing Power Pack herself, that she would try turning it over to me. Uh, so she basically arranged that uh, uh, to, to hand the book over to me. And um, it was really my first shot writing. And uh, I, she, she taught me a lot, and I was taking her lessons to heart. Uh, and uh, one of her big, um, you know, one of her big directives is to kill your darlings and to torture your characters. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, uh, and, and I got that same advice from, from Chris. Uh, and it shows in their work in that all their characters are always dealing with some kind of angst or other. Uh, uh, like you said, uh, Fantastic Four vs. the X-Men is a very internal story. It's about the inner conflicts of, of characters. And in a very real sense, a lot of Marvel was about that. Yeah. The yeah. inner conflicts of characters. It's true. Um, so, so when I wrote Power Pack, I, I went into... I took that maybe too seriously, and I went into um, what scares me as a kid and what scares me as a parent. Oh, okay, I see where you're heading with this. <laughs> yeah, uh, and um, and I I ran hard with that, uh, especially what was the crossover? The Inferno one, Inferno crossover. The Inferno one. Yep. Thank you very much. Uh, where Carmody uh, uh, becomes the boogeyman for real, yeah, uh, and uh, and he, you know, uh, goes on a vendetta against the kids, and the kids end up having to reveal themselves to their parents, and then their parents don't take it very well. Yeah, I thought that um, was great. You know, it was it was great, but it was it was grueling. I'm sure it was grueling. I would have really liked the parents to have to have taken it better, but but the idea was to make the kids' worst fears come true. Yeah, and and uh, and deal with it from there. And um, I go back and forth between thinking, "Wow, that's that's really good. That's dealing with real real stuff there." And also thinking like, God, I ruined these kids' childhoods, you know, um, because <laughs> I never really got to fully get them uh, through the healing process. Right. I mean, I did, but it was rushed. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that because I wasn't going to be on the book long enough, so, so I sort of got them back to normal without walking them through the 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 trauma recovery, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and PTSD and all that sort of stuff. Um, so yeah, great. Mom and pop are resilient, and they got used to and blah blah blah. But but uh, but I I feel like um, you know I didn't stay on it much longer after that, and then it went downhill after that. And the reason it went downhill is because uh, that moment never got fully resolved, never got fully answered. Never got fully recovered from, okay. and then and the and the new status quo never got to be fully explored. Oh, and there was there are stories there of what do you do if you're a normal parent and you love your kids and then you discover that a they are superheroes who are regularly exposed to things you cannot help them with. Right. They're beyond your ability to help, and B, that they've been keeping it a secret to you, from you. Yeah, and they've been doing these 
dangerous things for a long time. Yeah, I have kids who are power pack age, and that uh, when I was reading that recently, it was like, wow, this is this is actually pretty tough stuff here. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's it's really tough stuff, and you know, I was I was I was following the directives of my superiors who were who who kept trying to urge me to not be so cutesy and not be so sentimental and torture my characters, you know. So, so I, I, I ran with that, and I think it made some really good drama, but it got left undone. Yeah. And, and, and I think if I have any regrets in my entire career, it's that I would have liked to have done, rather than go off to do uh, X Factor, I wish I had spent that year uh, resolving Power Pack uh. Uh, and getting them back to a franchise that could persist because power pack is nowhere and it should be power pack should be uh marvel uh and disney frankly could really i think make use of that franchise and if we had been able to resolve it uh, had I been on it long enough, or if we had come back and been on, and then taken it over again, and we had resolved it, I think Power Pack would be a going franchise today, and and particularly under Disney would be uh, very successful. I think there'd be Power Pack kids at at, at Disneyland, but um, but so my my biggest regret is I never got to fully resolve the the pivotal conflict in the kids' lives, we're, and the seeds for that conflict were planted with issue one. You know, we can't tell mom and dad. Hmm. Having a secret identity from your parents. And it's so true of so many kids, you know, uh, uh, in, in real life. You know, think about, think about kids who grow up gay and can't tell their parents, that kind of thing. Having a secret identity from your parents, mm-hmm. uh, especially if those are good parents who love you. Uh, this is a real story for both kids and for parents. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really nice allegory that way, for sure. More recently, um, Julie Powers has um, come out as bisexual. Yeah. So that's 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 kind of um, more part of the same the same story there. Uh, yes, and boy, wouldn't it be lovely to, to? I mean, it would have been great to shepherd them all the way through their adolescence. Yeah. Uh, I would have loved to have um, worked with Julie through that. We knew we know a lot of kids who've been through that. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Uh, so it, it would have been. It would have been nice. It would have been nice. In another world, in another world, uh, Weezy or I would, in a parallel universe, Weezy or I came back to Power Pack and kept it going. But, uh, but it didn't happen. No. And, you know, things work out because had it, had it gone differently, I might not have ever done Superman. So. Right. Yeah. That's <laughs> true. Okay. Two more Power Pack questions. Um, I just want to note that issue number 47. Uh, is one of my favorites here. It's just such a different sort of issue. It's the one where um, Katie gets trapped in the the pocket of her costume. Oh, elsewhere. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and man, it's just a that's just a bizarre episode, but I love it. And your artwork is great. Dr- double page spreads and these just really uh, innovative ways of of uh, layouts, and it's it's great. And I love the uh, classic comic strip references, like the bringing out father references and such. Oh yeah, Maggie and Jigs, and yeah, yeah. That issue was a uh, a break into just happy for for me. Good, you know, uh, yep. you, have, you have serious episodes and you have and you have fun episodes, and I, I tried to alternate them. You know, alternate them. Like there's the there's the 
the trip to Maine is another one of the more lighthearted right. adventures. Uh, but, um, you know, we see established elsewhere uh, in issue one, their costumes go uh, elsewhere. Uh, their stuff in their pockets goes elsewhere, so their pockets never bulge. Else, the, the transdimensional quality of chameleon technology was part of it. But rather than saying they go into a pocket universe or they go into non-existence, she said elsewhere, which suggests a place. Right. Uh, so for some reason, I, I thought I'd make it an ode to sort of 19th century, early 20th century uh, fantasists who depicted fairy tales literally. You know, and and fairies were little people with wings, and and uh, you know the um, oh gosh, uh, the uh, land of Oz is definitely influenced in that. In yeah, that, uh, and you have uh, a lot of like kind of Windsor story. McKay and, um, and a lot of a lot of Windsor McKay, yep. some of Maggie and Jigs, uh, just a lot of that turn of the century kind of um, fantasy surrealism. Uh, I would say Windsor McKay is probably the the biggest influence on that because. Yep. I don't know. He's just a genius, and, and he is. Yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, the so that was really it was just for fun, um, and uh, I'm glad somebody likes it still. Good. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Last question. Numinous. Yes. Uh, <laughs> please explain numinous and why numinous looks so much like Whoopi Goldberg. Uh, my wife really likes Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> my wife really likes Whoopi Goldberg. Also, uh, Marvel has a number of cosmic demi- demigods, right? Yeah, yeah. But I wanted a cosmic demigoddess, character, yeah. you know, uh, because uh, I needed a, a a goddess character uh, for two reasons. The story needed it, and two, I thought the Marvel Universe could use it. Uh, and uh, numinousness, or numinosity, I guess, is... Essentially, the sense of uh, means the, uh, sort of the sense of wonder. It's it's the the uh, the epiphanic wonder of I don't know universe or whatever. Uh, but it also sounds like a, a Marvel cosmic deity name, you know, right. Luminous. Yeah, yeah. It <laughs> does. Just, instead of O U S, it's U S, and bang, Stan could have invented it. So so uh, you know, uh, it was uh, why why was she Whoopi Goldberg? Uh, I think mostly because I think mostly because a uh, my wife really loves Whoopi. Yeah. Uh, uh, but besides that, you know, I was trying to convey sort of a, a groovy Earth Mother vibe there, and uh, and Whoopi seemed good casting for that. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, sometimes sometimes when you design a character, you play around with who would be good to play this in a movie, right? Right. Who, who am I making this character look like? And uh, and in this case, uh, I just went like really far in that in that direction. Right. Remember remember when remember when Jack did Goody Rickles in in Jimmy Olsen and and he had Don Rickles appear oh, in yeah. there. In a, it was kind of like that. You can't get away with that anymore because you know likenesses are money and people own their likenesses. And, right. And you know and probably Whoopi could have sued the crap out of us. Oh, but she she's a, she's a good sport about this kind of stuff, though. Uh, you know, I think so. I mean, yeah. look, who's going to object to being a, a a Marvel cosmic deity, for crying out loud? Yeah, no kidding. More powerful uh, than Galactus. <laughs> right. I'm hoping that um, 
that Whoopi actually gets cast in like a future Guardians of the Galaxy movie as this character. Wouldn't that be awesome? It would be amazing. <laughs> also, I get royalties, which would be groovy. Oh, yes, that would be good, too. Wow. Well, we've had a great conversation here, John. I appreciate taking the time to talk with us. Um, do you have anything you're working on now that you'd like to tell our readers to check out? Oh, well, uh, at the exact moment, I'm doing um, uh, a character called Grounds Creeper for Sandy King Carpenter's Storm King. Uh, productions. Uh, Sandy is the uh, wife of uh, immortal horror director John Carpenter, of, of John Carpenter's The Thing. Right. Okay. And she does a line of really wonderful horror comics. Uh, and, um, you know, they're horror because obviously, you know, the, she's selling them partly with her, with her husband's name. But they're, they're, also just good comics in that they involve character and story and um you know so so they sort of they satisfy both your need for that shot of horror because that's definitely the genre but they also satisfy your what you want from comics which is uh compelling stories and characters uh and so i uh, was asked to design a character invented by um, Steve Niles and Steve Hovecki, uh, who is sort of a horror host in the tradition of, you know, EC's the uh, Crypt Keeper and of the Old Witch and Warren's Uncle Creepy and Cousin Eerie. Yeah. Uh, you know, just, uh, just the uh, framing device character. Right. Um, which, for me, is just a, it's a love letter to the old horror comics because yeah. back when I was... Back when I was 10 years old, I was reading Warren magazines like Mad and Famous Monsters of Filmland. And, you know, later, somewhat later than that, I discovered EC, because EC was, of course, before my time. Uh, and I, I love that stuff. You know, when I was a, when I was a kid, um, Saturday nights uh, were shock theater. You'd stay up late on Saturday night to walk, watch shock theater. And what this was, was there was this package of syndicated uh, movies. It was the, uh, the universal monster movies from the thirties, uh, all the way down to schlock independent sci-fi from the, from the fifties, but all black and white monster movies. It was, and it was a syndicated package that would be sold to local television stations. And they'd, they'd hire, I don't know, they'd hire the weatherman to dress up as a ghoul and, and host these things every Saturday night. Uh, and in, when I was a kid in Indiana, it was Sammy Terry. When I was a kid in, in uh, when I was a teenager in, in Virginia, it was the Bowman body. People in the New York area probably remember Zachary. Uh, uh, Elvira is, uh, is, is, uh, a West Coast version of that. Okay. Uh, and, and these characters are, uh, the the television equivalent of you know Uncle Creepy and and the Crypt Keeper and all that, so it's a, it was my chance to do a love letter to that stuff. Uh, so I'm doing framing devices for the I, I was I was called in at the last second to design this guy. Okay, yeah. Uh, 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 I guess because the artist they originally had planned uh, punked out, so oh. I I turned over a character design overnight. Yeah. Uh, and now they want me to go back and actually do continuity for those pages, I guess, nice. for the collected edition. Well, that's good. So, uh, so I'm working on that, and it's it's fun. I man, I love vintage horror, and it's 
you know, it's a like like the like its predecessors. It's a, a sort of a, a, a comedy esque uh, framing device for the more serious stories in, inside. Wow, great! Also, I should mention I should mention real quick. Yep. Uh, two other things: uh, the Mike Waringo uh, tribute book, uh, the big Telos Jam that has like 150 artists, 200 artists working on it. Uh, it was just announced. I've got three pages in there. Todd DeZago wrote it. It's drawn by everybody. Wow. Uh, and that's coming out, and that's really cool. So people ought to order that. And the other thing is, just to, just to plug everything and stay on message, uh, there's a book being published in France called Kirby and Me, which is a collection of 150 artists uh, sharing their personal memories of, of Jack, and uh, mine is uh, really, it's an anecdote about that first lentil soup dinner with Walter and Louise Simonson at their house. <laughs> so you uh, should order a copy of that on the Kickstarter. And then the last thing is I have a piece in the Thing art book uh, coming up. And that's not the Ben Grimm thing, but the John Carpenter thing. Got it. And that's it. That's all I have to plug. <laughs> awesome. Wow. Well, you <laughs> sound like you're uh, keeping busy, that's for sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, thanks for talking to me.